Let's turn in John's gospel to John chapter 18. We will read our scripture passage in verse 28 of John 18. And the scripture reading will go through verse 16 of chapter 19. So 18, 28 through 19, 16. And let's uh, stand together, if you can, while we read our scriptures this morning. John 18, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered the headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. 
The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold, your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. Indeed, gracious God, we thank you for this word that you give to us. Especially these words that that express the final moments of our Savior before he goes to the cross. God, we pray as we reflect in these next couple of moments on this interchange between Jesus and Pilate, that you would speak to us, encourage us with these words, that we might in our hearts exalt Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords, that we might with greater strength trust in his rule as Lord and Savior over our lives and that we would be faithful citizens of his kingdom under his reign. We'd ask that you would do that in these next few moments by the power of the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, amen. may have your seats. Reminder where we are here in John's gospel. We, we have seen our, in our course in John's gospel, we've gone through the public ministry of Jesus that takes the first 12 chapters. We've seen his private ministry to his disciples, which encompassed chapters 13 through 17. And lastly, we now get to the passion ministry of Jesus, his suffering and his dying on a cross and his resurrection again in chapters 18 through 20. And here we have the second part of the trial, of the various trials that Jesus had to go through. Last week, we saw not only Jesus' arrest, 
the beginning of chapter 18, but we saw the, the first phase of the Jewish trial and we saw Peter's denials. Remember, Jesus was brought before uh, the, um, the high priest, the former high priest, Annas. And what is actually uh, missing here is a couple of other phases that are, that are seen in the other Gospels. There were actually um, uh, several steps to the Jewish trial and the Roman trial. We get to the, the latter half of the Roman trial in the passage that we had just read. But let me just kind of fill this in for you. There, was, there were five different phases that are taking place here that you could see in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The first phase in the sequence was what we saw last week with Jesus brought before the former high priest, the father-in-law of, of Annas. Then the second phase, which would, it kind of begins in the passage that we saw here. It, notice in verse 28, it says, they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas. So um, it, it doesn't mention anything in John's gospel, what happens at Caiaphas's residence, but you could see that in the other Gospels, Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22. There it records for us the interchange between uh, Jesus and Caiaphas. And then from Caiaphas's house, he's actually sent to Pilate's house, and then Pilate sends him to Herod's house, and you can see that in Luke 23, and then he comes back to Pilate's house a second time. And so what we just read is that fifth stage of these trials his second visit back to Pilate's house. And this is the, the Jewish, excuse me, this is the, the Roman phase of the trial. And notice how it begins here in verses 28 and 29, 30. They led him to Caiaphas's house, to the governor's headquarters, what's called the Praetorium. It was early in the morning. And notice that it says, they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters and then it says, so that they would not be defiled to eat the Passover. Now, remember, biblically speaking, the entire world is divided into two groups, two peoples, Jews and Gentiles, the Jews or the nations. And it's very interesting that the fact that Jesus's trial includes um, Jesus's uh, judgment here. Jesus's, the verdict that's issued to Jesus' crucifixion actually has a trial phase from each of those two groups. First, there's the, the Jewish phase and then the Gentile phase. And what this really, I think, interestingly shows is that all of the world, in the condemnation of Jesus Christ, all of the world, Jew and Gentile alike, were involved in the condemnation of Jesus the Jew and Gentile alike were all at work in bringing him to be crucified. All alike were guilty in the death of the innocent son of God. This comports really well with the, the gospel that we see in the letter to the Romans, where the first three chapters, Paul is laying out the gospel of God throughout his entire letter to the Romans. And in the first three chapters, he begins by talking in Romans 1 about how all of the world, the, the Gentiles, the nations, the pagan nations are all guilty before God. And to that, many of the Jews would, have hear, he would hear that and go, yes, amen, yes, Paul, go get them. But then in chapter 2, he transitions to talk about how all of the Jews, even 
though they had been re received the words of God, they had received the law of God, they didn't do it. And that they themselves likewise were just as guilty, he says in Romans chapter 2. And it climaxes in Romans chapter 3 that all are guilty. All have sinned. All have fallen short of the gospel or the, the um, glory of God. All alike without distinction are guilty. And I think that that's pictured here in the fact that Jesus has gone to a trial before both the Jews and the Gentiles and then how ultimately they together were conspiring to condemn the innocent man, Jesus. But the good thing about the gospel is that all alike, Jew and Gentile, are all saved from that sin in the same way. And that is through faith in that crucified Savior, Jesus Christ. Notice as well how the Jews were so scrupulous to not go into to his house. It's been pointed out before um, that they did not want to go into the house so that they could eat the Passover. Notice how, how scrupulous that the Jews were in maintaining the observance of their formal religious practices, even while they were zealous to put the Messiah to death, for the Messiah to be mur murdered. And John notes that it's, it's because of the Passover. And we've seen throughout John's gospel before and then it's elsewhere in, in Paul's uh, letters to the Corinthians, he speaks about how Jesus himself is that Passover lamb. And so here they were wanting to take the Passover, but didn't want to enter a, a pagan Gentile's house to be defiled from taking that Passover when they missed the point of the Passover, which is Jesus himself. But I'd like to focus on the main interchange between Pilate and Jesus in verses 33 through 40. Now, I want you to kind of notice a little bit of the back and forth. You could have seen this before the, as we were reading through this account. You get the impression that the Jews are standing outside. They don't want to go in. But Jesus is inside with uh, Pilate. And Pilate has to kind of act as an intermediary. He keeps going from inside with Jesus and then outside to talk to the Jews and then back in to talk to Jesus and then back outside to talk to the Jews. But it's this one interchange here in verses 33 through 40 uh, that I would like for us to focus on and what Jesus reveals about himself and his kingdom. Notice verses 33 and 38. Verse 33, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? That's the, the crux of this matter. Now, notice that up until this point, no formal charge really had been given. Um, you saw that before. Uh, they, he asks in verse 29 to the Jews outside, what is the accusation? What is the charge that you want to bring him and not deal with him according to your laws, that you need to involve Rome in this? What is, your, what is the charge? You notice they don't really give an answer in verse 30. If this man were not doing evil, 
He, we would not have delivered him over to you. Just trust us. He's done some bad things. So this is why Pilate goes back into the house and uh, is now questioning Jesus. Notice verse 33. Are you the king of the Jews? Now he presumes at this point that it's the charge of treason. Which may, is made clear later. But there, he's presuming, he's kind of reading between the lines that, that in, the reason that they're, they're bringing Jesus to me is because he in some way has presented himself up as a rival to Caesar. And so look at Jesus' response to his question, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered in verse 34, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? In other words, is that your own idea or are you getting that from somewhere else? Jesus is asking a question here. What's the source of your information? Because in order for me to answer that question, I kind of need to know the little bit of the nature of this kingship that you have in mind. In other words, what, what do you mean by a king? And I love how Jesus is trying to get Pilate to think about these questions. Pilate's um, first reaction in verse 35 is a little bit of disdain that he has for the Jewish people. Am I a Jew? And then he turns it back onto Jesus and he says, you're the one basically that is shunned by your own people. Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. And then he gets to the point, what is it that you have done? Notice guilty until proven innocent. Jesus is not going to be shamed by Pilate. As a matter of fact, he's not intimidated by Pilate at all. Jesus wasn't intimidated by the arresting party. You remember? Who is it that you seek? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. And they fall down. Jesus is not intimidated by the high priest. Annas that we saw last week. Jesus is not intimidated by Pilate either. Is that just an exceptional boldness or... Is it because what Jesus is about to say undergirds all of this? What have you done? Jesus replies. And he actually is going back to Pilate's original question in verse 36. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answers in verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting and I would not be delivered uh, over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is controlling this line of questioning. He brings it back to his kingship. He claims that he did have a kingdom, but it's not the type of kingdom that Pilate would understand. My kingdom is from, literally in the Greek, from another place. His kingdom was given to him by God. It's not established by human struggle or victory in a war or a battle. His kingdom is different. It is otherworldly, but it is active in the world and will one day come to power fully and completely. But it is not a power of this world. It is of God. Now, Jesus acknowledges that he's a king here, and now Pilate has something substantial to work with. 
in verse 37. So you are a king. And Jesus responds directly here. You say that I am. Notice he's kind of forcing Pilate again to say this. You say it. You're saying that I am. Kind of, you can't help but think that Jesus is trying to get a confession from Pilate here. You say that I am. I was born and came into this world for this, to bear witness to the truth. Pilate wanted a confession from Jesus that he was king of a worldly kingship in a worldly kingdom. But Jesus refused to be pinned down in that way. Instead, he came to be as a witness to the truth. A witness to the coming of the kingdom of God. And Jesus basically says, everyone who is on the side of truth listens to me. Echoing what he said about him being the the good shepherd and the sheep hearing his voice. Notice at the end of verse 37, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And perhaps Pilate would listen to his voice, but no. What does Pilate say? In this exchange, Jesus seems to still be trying to influence Pilate to hear the truth and to believe the truth, but Pilate doesn't. Instead, he has a fallback, and it's a lazy and dismissive fallback. And it's a lazy and dismissive fallback that we still see in the world today, right? What is truth? The fallback of it's all relative. And here, Pilate is picturing perfectly what I just said earlier about Romans chapter 1 and about the pagan nations in Romans 1.18, at the very beginning of all this discourse, he says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against man, against the unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Here we have a real live example of somebody suppressing the truth by just dismissing that it even is a thing. I want us to focus here on Jesus' statement in verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, people would be fighting. In a way that Pilate would understand. In a way that Rome would understand. But my kingdom's not of this world. I want us to explore this a little bit because I think that this has some relevance to us today, especially all over the world, but especially here in the United States. It's important to see what Jesus is saying here, that it not be kind of misconstrued or meaning that the kingdom is uh, something otherworldly and not active in the world today, or that it has nothing to do with this world. Sometimes I see this verse being cited in such a way it is to say that, well, the kingdom of heaven is, doesn't really have anything to do with the world today. I want to contend with that a little bit, and I'd like to do that by quoting um, extensively from J.C. Ryle. You've heard me quote him a couple of times in this John series so far. So just bear with me. I'm I'm just going to read a a significant portion here from J.C. Ryle. The second point that we should notice, he says in these verses, is the account that our Lord Jesus Christ gives of his kingdom. He says, my kingdom is not of these wor- this world. These famous words have, off- have so often been perverted and 
wrested out of their real sense that their true meaning has been almost buried under a heap of false interpretations. Let us make sure that we know what we mean and what they mean. Our Lord's main object in saying, my kingdom is not of this world, was to inform Pilate's mind concerning the true nature of his kingdom, right? We saw this. He, he, Jesus is saying, are you saying this on your own accord or others saying this about me? I want to understand. I want to get an idea of what it is that you mean when you ask me if I'm a king. Because my, the nature of my kingdom is different than what you would think, okay? J.C. Ryle continues, and to correct any false impression he might have received from the Jews. He tells him that he did not come to set up a kingdom which would interfere with the Roman government. He did not aim at establishing a temporal power to be supported by armies, for instance, or maintained by taxes, for instance. The only dominion that Jesus exercised was over men's hearts and the only weapons that his subject employed are spiritual weapons. See this elsewhere in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Ephesians chapter 6, that we our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but the, the principalities and powers in this present world. Rao continues, a kingdom which required neither money nor servants for its support was one with which the Roman emperors needed to be afraid. In the highest sense, it was a kingdom not of this world. So Ryle establishes for us that the kingdom that Jesus oversees, that he rules and reigns over, is, doesn't operate in the same way that the earthly ones do. Okay? But, Ryle goes on, but our Lord did not intend to teach that the kings of this world have nothing to do with religion and ought to ignore God altogether in the government of their subjects. Let me say that again. He's saying that Jesus does not teach here that the kings of this world have nothing to do with religion or ought to ignore God altogether in the governing of their subjects. No such idea, may, we may be sure, was in his mind. He knew perfectly well what was written in the Proverbs, by me, kings reign. And that kings are as much required to use their influence for God as the lowest of his subjects. In other words, kings, you know, remember Romans 13 says all governments are appointed by God. And so everybody who is in a position of government is under the authority of Christ. He knew that the prosperity of earthly kingdoms is wholly dependent upon the blessing of God. And that earthly kings are as much bound to encourage righteousness and godliness as to punish unrighteousness and immorality. Friends, do you see that today? Do you see the earthly rulers today? Encouraging righteousness and godliness and punishing unrighteousness and immorality. Ryle continues, to suppose that he meant to teach Pilate that, 
in his judgment, an infidel might be as good a king as a Christian, and a man like Gallio, as good a ruler as David or Solomon, is simply absurd. Let us carefully hold fast the true meaning of our Lord's words in these latter days. Let us never be ashamed to maintain that no government can expect to prosper which refuses to recognize religion, which deals with its subject as if they had no souls and cares not whether they serve God or Baal or no God at all. Let's not be ashamed to say that no government can continue to operate that way. Such a government will find sooner or later that its line of policy is suicidal and damaging to its best interests. By the way, he said this over like 140-something years ago. Do you think that in today's world, in today's age, that we're acting more in line with what he describes here as a policy that's suicidal, that's not acting, that is damaging the best interests of governments and the citizens and peoples of those governments? But they that can encourage and support Christianity, and they will do so if they are wise. The kingdom where there is the most industry, temperance, truthfulness, and honesty will always be the most prosperous of kingdoms. The king who wants to see these things abound among his subjects should do all that lies in his power to help Christianity and to discourage irreligion. Now, maybe you you're, might not be inclined to agree with Ryle here, but at least let this, this challenge your thinking a little bit. If Christianity is true, if Jesus is real, he really is the Son of God, and he is the King of Kings, then his rule and his reign should be recognized by all. And it is to our great harm when governments don't. Ryle continues, the favorite theory of certain Christians that this text forbids governments to have anything to do with religion, condemns the union of church and state, and renders all established churches unlawful, is in my judgment baseless, preposterous, and utterly devoid of common sense. Now, he's speaking in a context where he was a part of the Church of England, and so there really was no uh, separation of church and state. Now, for us in American context, we might cringe a little bit at, at this, uh, it, the way he puts it here. But at least to understand his larger point, that governments that seek to operate in a purely secular humanistic fashion will not survive. Whether the union of church and state be right or wrong, it appears to me absurd to say that it is forbidden by this text. The text that declares that Christ's kingdom did not spring from the powers of this world and is not dependent on, uh, dependent on them, but the text does not declare that the powers of this world ought to have nothing to do with Christ's kingdom. He goes through a couple of uh, key points, principles worth remembering. And so let me just kind of quickly go through those. Here's the first one. Every government is responsible to God. 
and no government can expect to prosper without God's blessing. Do you agree? Every government is responsible to God. Now, that doesn't mean every single ruler has to be an actual converted Christian. But the, every single ruler has to recognize the truth that God has revealed. Here's the second one. Every good government should endeavor to promote truth, charity, temperance, honesty, diligence, industry, and chastity among its subjects. Think governments should do that? Should promote the good and discourage the evil? Should reward the good and punish the evil? And not good and evil as we would define it, but good and evil as God defines it. Should governments do that? Romans 13 says, yes. Do you see that happening today? No. The third one, to tell us that a government must leave religion alone because it cannot promote it without favoring one church more than another is simply absurd, he says. It is the equivalent of saying that as we cannot do good to everybody, we are to sit still and do no good at all. Here's his fourth one. To tell us that no government can find out what true religion is and that consequently a government should regard all religions with equal indifference. He says that's an argument only fit for an infidel. And lastly, it is undoubtedly true that Christ's kingdom is a kingdom independent of the rulers of the world and one which they can neither begin, increase, nor overthrow. But it is utterly false that the rulers of this world have nothing to do with Christ's kingdom. It's utterly false to say that the rulers of this world may safely leave religion entirely alone and may govern their subjects as if they were beasts and had no souls. Ryle gives us plenty to ponder there, and I believe that he is on to something, which is um, we might have some quibbles living here in the United States with separation from church and state, but the fact is, what if it is true that Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he says that his kingdom is not of this world, but his kingdom is in this world among his people, then all the governments should and rulers should Follow likewise. Let's look at Jesus' kingdom, shall we? Let's look at Jesus as the king. And I want to do this by going through several passages of scripture. Looking at Jesus' kingdom. Not much is said in John's gospel really up to this point about his kingdom. Uh, he says in John 3 that, you know, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. He makes a reference to it there. There were some people in uh, John 6, some among his followers are really excited. and They wanted to capture him and make him king by force. Uh, other than that, king language is not a theme that we've seen in John's gospel. But here it comes to the fore where Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. So let's review elsewhere about Jesus and his kingship and his rulership over all things. First of all, it's prophesied in the Old Testament. Psalm 
2, verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Remember Psalm 2, there you have uh, the Lord saying to the, the, the son who is the king over Zion. And the New Testament writers see Psalm 2 as a prophecy of Jesus. Psalm 132, the Lord swore to David an oath from which he will not turn back. One of your sons of your body I will set on your throne. Whose son is Jesus? Well, Joseph, we'd say, here at Christmas time. But ultimately, it's the son of David. Or Isaiah chapter 6, which gets us here to our Advent season. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. The government of what? The, the kingdom of God. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Or Jeremiah 23, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness. Or Micah 5.2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Jesus' kingship was prophesied and planned in the Old Testament, and it's fulfilled in the birth of Christ. Remember the wise men who come to Herod in Jerusalem, and they say, we will come to congratulate you. There's the king of the Jews has been born. And Herod's troubled by this, and he goes and he turns to the, the, the scholars, okay, where's this Messiah to be born? And they, they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least. It just quotes from what we just read in Micah chapter 5. In Bethlehem. What about Luke 1? And he will be great, and we be called the Son of the Most High, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. We've seen this already in John's gospel, where Jesus is riding in on the colt of a donkey, as it is written, quoting again from the Old Testament, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey. The kingship of Jesus is prophesied in the Old Testament, fulfilled in Christ. And then let's look at some of what it is that Jesus rules over. He rules over all of creation. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. In the letters to the churches, and to the angel of the church of Laodicea, right? The words of the amen, the faithful and the true. And then here it says in the ESV, the beginning of God's creation. But the Greek word there is arche, and it's the same. It could mean the beginning or source or origin but it is also used as, as the ruler, you know, the, the beginning and source from which authority derives. And so that could be read as the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler over God's creation. Which I think if you look elsewhere in Revelation, you could see a picture of that. He's the ruler over the kings of the earth in Revelation. 
Chapter 1.5, it says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Revelation 17. And they make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords and King of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Or in Revelation 19, the picture of the resurrected Jesus, when it says, And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. I could go on. He's the king over Israel, which we saw in Matthew chapter 2. Nathaniel says, when he sees him at the beginning of John's gospel, he says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. The people, as Jesus was riding in on that donkey, they took palm branches and went out to meet him. Remember, saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the king of Israel. But he's the king over all believers as well. I think you get the idea. And we see something of his kingdom here. It's otherworldly. It's heavenly. But it's active in this world. His is a kingdom of peace. Remember, Jesus is not going to operate according to the earthly powers and weapons of war. Because as Jesus is being captured, Peter grabs his sword and attacks the servant of the high priest, Malchus. And Jesus rebuked him. He said, no, that's not what my kingdom is about. And it is centered on truth. You say that I am a king. And for this purpose, I was born in this purpose. I came into the world to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Friends, we look around the world today and we see, do we see the nations of this world operating under the authority of Christ? Or at least operating themselves under Christ and his authority? I don't see it. I don't see, in particular, our nation operating that way. The leaders of our nation can't even tell you what a woman is. Jesus Christ's kingdom is connected to him proclaiming the truth. Currently, our governmental leaders are encouraging confusion between men and women. Currently, our government's leaders are encouraging redefining marriage, the first human institution created by God. The leaders of our country are attempting to confuse children about what gender is. And even more horrifyingly, grooming them in a certain direction. From an earthly perspective, it's, these are dark days. 
These are dark days. But what encouragement can we get from in the midst of these dark days and these dark times? Well, I'd say, I'd say this, that if you are in Jesus Christ, that if you have repented of your sins and you confess him as Lord and Savior, that you become citizens of his kingdom. You are, as Colossians says, you are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his glorious son. That through faith in Jesus Christ and his work alone, apart from yours, that you are a part of a kingdom that can never be shaken. Hallelujah. And if you're a part of that kingdom and yet residence in the kingdom of this world, you can call the earthly leaders to account. I pray that we would all have the courage to do so in whatever capacity that we can. That we, like Jesus, would come to testify to the truth. To say, yes, we do know what a woman is. Or to say, no, that's not what marriage is. We can testify to those things, not because those are political issues of the day, but because those are revealed from God himself. And that the earthly leaders are accountable to him. We could warn them. Even as one pastor, John MacArthur, recently wrote a letter appealing to the governor of his state laying out the ways in which his policies were uh, going radically against what God has revealed. So much so he was, and you probably know the account of this, the governor of that state was advertising that abortions could be happening to his state, happen in his state, that you could come and do that and then connected it with the words of Jesus to loving the least of these. And he calls the governor out for that publicly. But not to say, I told you so or I got you. He called to say, and I'm calling you to repent. Friends, if we would have likewise that courage, we're in dark days. But may we remember that even in the midst of the darkness of our days, that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We are subjects of Christ who is seated at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. He is our king. And we do have a kingdom that will not be shaken. So let's live like that. Amen? Let's pray. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to King of kings and Lord of lords, we 
gratefully and joyfully bow our knees before you. We submit ourselves to you as the ruler over all creation and the ruler over all things and the ruler over our lives. We thank you that your kingdom does not operate according to the worldly systems that are in place today. But help us to never forget that your kingdom is present in this world. That by your spirit dwelling in us, that you are active and ruling and reigning in the world today. God, we pray that even and evermore that our lives would be more in alignment with your kingdom, that we live as citizens of your realm. We pray that we would faithfully testify to these earthly kingdoms the need for them to submit to your reign. And that we would never give in to earthly systems that pro promote myths and falsehoods and untruths that we would stand upon the truth even as you were born and came into the world to testify to the truth. So we ask for your spirit to empower us, to give us the courage to speak and to act and to live as your citizen representatives in this world. We pray that in your name, Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, all your people say, Amen and Amen. Friends, I stand, invite you to stand for our closing benediction. From Hebrews chapter 13. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ. To, him, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Peace be with you. Thank you.